Advent is meant to be a season of interruption, when the busyness of our lives is disrupted by the arrival and anticipation of Jesus. Where instead of moving at such a frenetic speed, we slow down to pay attention and to enter in. And so the dynamic, I think, between the busyness of the season and Advent, it just creates a difficult tension that every year we try to wade into. And I was thinking about this, there's no maybe better place to see this tension on display than in, we're going to return to the subject, the, the subject of Christmas music and Advent music. Everywhere you go this year, you will hear Christmas music. It's the same Christmas music you heard last year. It's the same Christmas music your mom heard. Right? It's the same Christmas music. For some reason, we can't update it. But when you go and hear Christmas music, all the music you hear, you'll hear is laden with expectations. It's a music that is laden with a kind of hope and a kind of expectations, whether it's about all that you want for Christmas or what you're dreaming about for Christmas or whether it's Elvis's blue Christmas because your expectations have been so dashed that you're now sad. And it's interesting that all of our music is so laden with a sense of expectation. It's like when we enter a shopping mall, we are all of a sudden experiencing and participating in quite a profound Christmas liturgy. Songs declare hope and expectation, a kind of Advent energy. There's decorations, decor all around us. And then we leave that space and we enter into the church or into this space. And again, there's like decor, there's festivities, there's candles, there's a visual liturgy. And then you hear the music of a Sunday service. And it is like Christmas music, laden with the kind of Advent expectation. But it is a significantly different kind of expectation. We started today with Joy to the World, and the opening lyric of Joy to the World is, Joy to the World, the Lord is come, let the earth receive her King. Well, that's a much different set of expectations or celebrations. In a few moments we'll sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is a different hope and expectation. I think what makes Advent and Christmas tricky is that there are two different invitations on offer to us as we enter into the season, marked by different kinds of songs, different kinds of celebrations, different kinds of expectations. And so this year, what we want to do as a community is press into those different expectations, hopes, and anticipations. To press into the songs of Advent, to curate in us a deeper longing. To do this, we're going to be looking at four ancient Advent songs. These songs come from the book of Isaiah, and they are not maybe the songs that you are familiar with in the book of Isaiah, but they are Advent songs. They are songs that name Israel's hope, that name Israel's anticipation, name Israel's longing. These songs are referred to collectively as the servant songs. And you'll notice as we go through them week to week, there is a consistent theme, consistent character, similar structure to each of them. The first song comes in Isaiah 42, is what Austin read for us so beautifully this morning. And I want to read it a bit backwards because I think... Uh, it's illuminating to see it backwards. 
the last verse we read from this morning was in verse 10, where God comes to the people of Israel and says this, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the ends of the earth. Now, out of context, I think that sounds like a very traditional praise psalm. If you read the psalms, you see that kind of language showing up all over again. And it's not that weird to be like, yeah, we're going to sing a song of praise to God. Great, normal, moving on. What makes this moment fascinating is the context of Israel's life at this time. Because they are being told to sing a new song while they are in exile. So in the 6th century, Israel is conquered by the nation of Babylon, and they are led into captivity in a foreign nation. And it is arguably the most traumatic and chaotic moment in Israel's life. Their city is destroyed. The walls torn down. The temple, which is like the place of God's presence, where he was mediating with them and knowing them and experiencing them in relationship, that is destroyed. And families and citizens are taken from Israel, split apart, and led into captivity in Babylon. And while they are in Babylon, they receive this word, sing a new song. Can you imagine how that would hit? No, thank you. I'm quite sad now. <laughs> to be told to sing a new song, it evokes like images of joy, but if you are in exile and in sadness and displaced from your home where you've watched your history and your livelihood and your family and your culture be destroyed, singing a new song would be quite literally the last thing that you would want to do. And there's this moment in Psalm 137 that beautifully illustrates this, where Israel says, we don't want to sing anymore. The psalm is written while Israel is in captivity, and it's verse 1 through 3 says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for a song. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. It was like we couldn't. So we hung up our instruments. We hung up our musical instruments because we could no longer sing. The psalm names the profound sadness that Israel is experiencing. And it begins to address some of the questions that Israel would be having in this moment because all of a sudden their livelihood has been upturned, their whole story has been upturned by the Babylonian captivity and now they find themselves in a strange land and with that strange moment comes new profound questions. How can we sing when we lost? How can we sing God's praises when it seems like God is not strong enough to save us? How can we sing of Zion? How can we sing praises when our life has been so upturned by the experiences of the world? How could we possibly sing in this moment? Singing feels like an act of joy, but we don't have it. Our lives are different than the people of Israel's. But I think many of us feel this same tension during the Advent season. Maybe this Advent specifically or Advents all together. 
the kind of rejoicing and celebration, the kind of joy that is often accompanied in this season might feel particularly difficult this year. And there's lots of reasons that could be true. Maybe something in your own life feels personally dislocating. And as that personal dislocation, that exile that you're experiencing is happening, you don't know how to sing or how to long or how to celebrate in this moment. Maybe Advent always feels difficult. If you've lost a parent or a loved one like my wife and I have, holidays always feel dislocating. The celebration is always marked by a tangible grief and holding the tension of those two things together feels difficult and hard and dislocating. Or maybe you look around you and you're like, I don't know how to sing a song because what I'm witnessing in the world does not feel like joy. This month we bear witness to two more mass shootings. That's not the topic of friendly Christmas conversations, but it is the reality that's so often displayed back to us that can grip us in a way that's like, I don't know how to sing in the midst of that. I don't know how to celebrate the arrival of of good news in the midst of that? How can I possibly celebrate? How can I possibly sing? How can God come to Israel and say, sing a new song? I think the answer to that question depends on the kind of song God is asking Israel to sing. And this is what God says about the new song Israel is to sing. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. I love the language of this verse. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being. It reminds me of Shakespeare's now is the winter of our discontent. Now you are in a winter. Now you are in a difficult moment. Now you are in a place that feels lonely, in a place that feels like exile, in a place that is cold, in a place that feels dark. And this song does not deny those things. This song does not hide that reality. This song does not push that reality away. This song does not cover that in some veneer of poppy, toxic positivity. It does not say you have to push it to the side. No, no, no. no. This song recognizes that right now is not spring. That we're in a moment that feels like winter. A moment where it feels cold. And yet it is also a song of hope and anticipation. A song that emerges from the winter, the waiting, and the longing. That's what an Advent song truly is. An Advent song in the ancient world of Israel in our own lexicon today is at its best a song that names the pain around us and cries out for hope. 
It does not ignore the difficulties. It does not ignore the fact of winter. It does not hide those away. Instead, it cries out, O come, Emmanuel. Why? To ransom captive Israel. The song is explicit in the need for deliverance. Monsieur, we need these Advent songs. I think, one, we need them because they name our own anticipation and our own longing. They're songs that give us voice in a season that can be difficult, a season that can be tricky, a season that can be rife with tension. But for others of us, these songs also force us to pay attention to the world around us. Advent songs are about longing. Advent songs are about anticipation and hope because people need hope. And this is not a thing that we as maybe modern American Christians are all that good at. One of my professors in college, the Bible scholar Sung Chan Ra, wrote a beautiful book called Prophetic Lament, talking about Israel's lament songs. Songs of hope and anticipation, but songs that are birthed out of deep winters. And in a moment where he's kind of naming some of the things that the American church struggles to do, he says this. I think it's very helpful. He says, The American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized, and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence does not make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. The absence of lament in the liturgy of the American church, in our worship, in our singing, results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of suffering over pain. And so we forget the reality of suffering and pain. I think this is one of the things that makes Advent and Christmas, again, tricky to do together. Christmas is so often about lights, about gifts, about glitz. Glitz? About glitter. It's a season of celebration. It's a season of, and it's good, it's right. Do not hear this as a criticism, but it is a season that for those of us who are well-to-do and stable, it perpetuates our well-to-do-ness and our own stability. And Advent songs have a way of intruding upon the stability of the well-to-do in ways that make us uncomfortable. And so we'd rather Advent feel like a good Christmas time as opposed to have the intrusion of a need for a servant Savior to enter the world. Christmas is about the perpetuation of stability and celebration. And there's many beautiful things about that. But Advent has a way of pulling back the layers of our world to show us that not all that glitters is gold. Some things need to be interrupted. Some things need an intervention. Some things do need a miracle. Some things do need incarnation. And Advent is longed for. And these songs... They call us into it so that we too, as the church, might long more. The point of saying these things is not so that your Christmas hopes would be dashed. That's not what I'm here for. It's bad for business. (laughs) 
It's not to dash Christmas hopes. Instead, it is to expand them to the right and proper, transcendent and divine Jesus-y level. The truth is that so often, in our stability and in our comfortability, our hopes are just too small. In the busyness of consumption and life, our hopes get myopic. Our expectations get myopic. And the promise of Advent is the promise of renewal. It's the promise of a new world. It's the promise of God entering into the universe because the universe needs God there. And so for us to understand that, for us to hear that, and for us to celebrate that as it is, we need to pay attention. Not to crush our hopes, but to expand them. Not to eliminate joy. No, no, no. It's to give us so much more. It's to give us so much more. Advent songs give us a bigger hope, a bigger anticipation, and a greater joy because they do not hide things that are lamentable, but they, in clarity, lament what needs to be lamented so that they know what they need to be rescued from, what needs to change, what new world needs to be birthed. We see this in verse 8, where God contrasts the kind of song that he's giving to Israel versus the kind of song that is often given to the world. Verse 8, God says this, I am the Lord. That is my name, and I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. What God is saying is that the song he is giving refuses to settle for lesser deities, lesser objects of hope, lesser promises. It refuses, in Israel's case, to accept the power of Babylon as the end of the story. It refuses to accept the world order as the end of the story. It refuses to accept the things that we often call normal but are broken as the end of the story. It will not settle for idols. It demands more. will not settle for lesser hopes. It demands and awaits something bigger, something better. I love the way that theologian Walter Brueggemann says this. He's talking about this song specifically, Isaiah 42. And he writes this. The new song that God gives never describes the world the way it is now. The new song imagines how the world will be in God's time to come. The new song is a protest against the way the world is now. The new song is a refusal to accept the present world as it is, a refusal to believe this is right or that this present will last. Advent songs are protest songs. They're demands for more. They are promises of more. They help us pay attention to the reality of the world around us, and then they call us into a bigger hope, a bigger promise of a new world. Look at the lyrics of this song. I'm going to jump back to the beginning of Isaiah 42. It is absolutely beautiful, and it is absolutely massive. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. That's big words. 
He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. In meekness and humility and kindness and graciousness, somehow that will bring justice. That's a hope that doesn't make any sense in the present world order. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, but can you, I can't even imagine how wild this part of the song would have been to a bunch of Israelites who had just been conquered by a foreign nation and now are in a foreign nation having to sing a song about someone who will bring justice that will somehow include the Babylonians who conquered them. Wild. And he will open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. Can you imagine being told to sing this song while you are in captivity? What a wild thing to to be asked to do. You've been conquered, you've been led into exile, and God says, I'm going to give you a new song to sing. And it is a song of such massive hopes that it imagines a world in which your tormentors are made family? In which the light to the nation is spread to all the earth and justice is wrought to the nations? I want you to sing that to the people who have conquered you and captivated you. That's a risky thing to do. But that's what Advent is. It's a risk in hope that God is moving. It's a naming of our deep longings, of our deep anticipations that God would actually rescue the world, that God would actually intervene and intrude and disrupt this place in the way that only God can. Advent songs are songs about divine interruption and intervention. And they demand nothing less. Israel continued to sing this song for a long time. It sustained them in exile. It sustained them in their return from exile because after 70 years in Babylonian captivity, they get to go home and begin to rebuild their city, but they still remain captive And they continued to sing these songs, curating a hope and a promise. But there was a lot that they didn't know about the song. There's a lot they don't know about the song, to be honest. But there's a lot they did not know about the song. They didn't know when God would fulfill the promise of this song. Didn't know who the servant was. You have hints and ideas that run throughout books like Isaiah and other prophetic literature. But... It just continues to curate that anticipation and that longing. And we'll talk about this in the weeks to come. But they curate this longing and this anticipation until we get to the book of Matthew. 
And all of a sudden, the song begins to resound in a person. The Bible writer sees Jesus, the Bible writer Matthew sees Jesus, and as he's healing and working with people, Matthew has this moment of recollection. In Matthew 12, he begins to quote the Isaiah 42 promise, this is the servant whom I have chosen. Monsieur, we live in the aftermath of Jesus' arrival. When when Matthew sees Jesus and says, oh, that's the chosen servant who we've been celebrating and declaring, but that does not mean for us that this song has resolved. The Bible ends with another song. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come again. Advent for us as the people of Jesus, it is a moment in which we celebrate, yes, the arrival of Jesus. And we continue to talk about those themes in the next weeks we'll talk about those promises and those hopes. But it is a moment that still calls us to long for something, to anticipate something. To recognize what's happening in the world around us and to continue singing the chorus of Isaiah 42, of a new thing springing into being. And so before we look at the hope fulfilled, which will come in the weeks to come, I want it today to be about naming the longing that leads to these songs. Advent only makes sense when we know the need for intrusion when we actually long for something. And so as we come to a conclusion, let me just ask you a simple question. What song do you sing this Advent? Maybe I should ask what song do you need to sing this Advent? Is it a song that sees clearly the reality and the tension of our world? That fearlessly names the reality and the tension of your own life? Is it a song that acknowledges the truth and demands more than so often the promises and idols of our world deliver? Is it a song that expands anticipation and hope that presses on our longings to make them bigger and bolder? Or is it a song that settles for less? Monsieur, we are invited to be a people of the Advent song who sing together a hope for the world. I love this quote from Brueggemann again. He says, the church is always at its most daring and risking and dangerous and free when it sings a new song. Because then it sings that the power of the gospel will not let the world finally stay as it is. So we're invited to be a people of a new Advent song who declare the hope of the world who sing of the servant who has entered the world to rescue it. 
So what song do you sing? Now in a moment, we will sing together, which is an opportunity to practice exactly what we've talked about, singing the Advent song. But there are other practices, especially during this season, that can help us name our longings and our anticipation. One of those practices that we do every single week is gather at this table. And we'll do that again to celebrate the new covenant, as Isaiah calls it. But another practice that marks Advent uniquely is the lighting of the candles. Every Sunday during the season of Advent, we light one candle. And the candles are representative of different parts of the story, of different promises. And the very first candle is the hope candle. Feels appropriate today. It's a candle that names a bigger hope. And when we light this candle, what we're saying is that hope is alive, that we refuse to settle for less. And so as we sing our song, in a moment a volunteer will come and light this candle with a kid and use that kind of as like a moment to respond. And then on this table, there are a handful of candles, little tea candles and also tall purple candles. And we invite you to light those also. And as you do, would you, would you come with the question, what song do we sing this Advent? What hope do we declare? What longing are we naming? Would you name that hope and name that longing as you come to this table? Let's pray. Jesus, today as we continue to sing, as we continue to hear your story, as we gather at the table, give us a bigger hope. Don't let us settle for small promises, small expectations, or even just the way busyness can distract us. Would you give us a big hope? Would we see the world in clarity and demand more because you've invited us to? And with that hope, seed us this Advent season. So as we continue to sing, and as we continue to celebrate, and as we continue to anticipate, would it curate in us a deeper longing, fully aware of the needs of our world and our own lives? God, help us to hope for more so that we might rejoice in you for more. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.